Good morning. Well, we're turning in our Bibles now to Psalm chapter, excuse me, Psalm 5. And as we've noticed in the prior weeks, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 serve as our gateway into the Psalms. Psalm 1 is what is known, as we have stated, a, a Torah psalm. And Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. Together, they serve as the pillars by which we enter into the rest of the psalms. And we're making our way now into a collection of psalms that are tied to David's experiences, where he is being encircled by enemies, most likely the enemies that are associated with Absalom. Absalom sought to overthrow David, replace David as king. Interestingly, Absalom was David's son. So what you're going to see now in this particular psalm is that the dominant theme is the theme of prayer. And David is going to be praying to God in distressing times. And he's going to be asking God to intervene on his behalf because God has made a promise. And the promise to David is that it would be through David's line that Messiah would come into this world. Now, this psalm then, with the theme of prayer, uh, has a superscription that's attached to it, and we'll notice them each time we cover a psalm, because in today's psalm, Psalm 5, what you and I notice is that it is to the choir master, so David is the composer, and this is for the flutes. And what interests me is that David played a harp, a form today of a guitar, back in that day, and the flutes were literally the nailoth, which were some blend of flute and oboe in today's musical uh, terminology. The flute generally, in this particular case, was used as a solo instrument. What this tells me is that because David played what would then be known as the harp, David wrote this song for someone else to play, not for himself. And so we're going to keep that in mind then, because David is allowing for this psalm to, in essence, express itself musically as it now penetrates his heart and reestablishes his connectedness with God as he seeks God in prayer. So now picture with me now that they're enveloping troops that are surrounding Jerusalem. We're told in 2 Samuel chapter 15 that Absalom was preparing himself to declare himself to be king. What's a man to do? Here we find David now praying to God in distressing times. So this morning, if you find yourself in any way, shape, or form feeling stressed and distressed, because of the circumstances you find yourself in, job-wise, family-wise, health-wise, matters of spirituality within the home, let's look at these verses together and see how they relate to prayer. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king, on my gut. For to you do I pray. 
O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. And watch. You're up to verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And you say, Gary, that's pretty tough stuff there to be praying. Well, follow along in your insert. And bear in mind this morning that there is a particular as well as generals attached to this. David is the messianic carrier leading to Jesus Christ. Justice comes down on sin. Grace is extended towards sinners. David now is speaking of the justice of God while he will also pray over the grace of God. Read on. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I'll bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because the abundance of their transgressions cast them out for they have rebelled against you. In essence now, what we're saying is that the Antichrist line, the anti-Messianic line now, in opposition as being used by the evil one to thwart the coming of Jesus Christ. He's asking that justice comes down upon that, and that, and that plan and that effort so that grace can now be extended through his line through the cross of Jesus Christ. Read on. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, as the disciples turned to Jesus, and said, Lord, teach us to pray. This morning we have our Lord, through your word, giving us the opportunity to understand what it means to ask, teach us to pray. And you're about to do so in your word. So, Father, for this second of the services and for those online at this moment and in the coming days and weeks who are grappling with matters that are distressing and they don't have solutions, 
and they're seeking you, but sometimes just don't know how to put it into words. What to emphasize, what to truly ask for. We pray that your word this morning is going to give us the guidance we need. So again, now, Father, these words, all 12 verses are important. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. Pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Ray Ortland, in his volume, The Best Half of Life, reflecting upon prayer, pens these thoughts. I like to start out the morning covering the whole day by prayer. After a time of praise and confession, I take out my appointments, my schedule book, and pray through the hours. I pray for everyone I am scheduled to see. I ask that I might be of help to them, but also ask for my eyes to be open to what it is that, that the Lord wants to say to me. Because I found that as I pray for the unscheduled ones I bump into, if I find myself, I am praying over my interruptions and placing them squarely under God's sovereign control. I'm not irritated, but rather I realize these are part of God's appointments part of God's plan. So I pray over the day, and I encourage you to pray over every phone conversation. Pray about your lunch hour. Pray over the evening. Pray and think about the time you'll be with those you love the most. Pray through the day before you experience it, and then Relax. Whatever comes, God's got it covered. I can almost hear now Pastor Ortland standing next to David at that point and says, God's got this one covered. You might feel encircled, but God's got this one covered. What I want to do with you this morning, and for those that are watching online over the course of the days and weeks to come, is to examine now these 12 verses in this fifth psalm, part of what I will call the, the Psalms of Conflict. And what I want to do with you now is to draw out four particular needs that are found here, identified in this psalm, that better equip you, better equip me to take on the days of our lives, no matter how challenging the days might be. And the first need flows out of verse 1 down through verse 3. That in order for you and for me to pray effectively during what we'll call this morning distressing times, why don't you begin by noting with me the preparations that we need to make. 
pick it up in verse 1. Look for what's unfolding here. Do you see a, a, a mood that's developing here? Do you feel the emotions that are intensifying here? Look at the words. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King, my God, for to you do I pray. Let's develop this. Notice that give ear to my words. Notice furthermore the consider my groaning. Add to it, give attention to the sound of my cry. This is a three-step upward sense, an escalation of intensity with regard to the issues of the hour that he's facing, distressed by life. Now, when he says, give ear to my words, he's trying to articulate something before God. And as he articulates, he, he says, oh, Lord, you can almost hear the exhale as he, as he now utters that, can't you? And what fascinates us is that Lord is capital L-O-R-D, so that's the covenantal name for his God, your God, my God, the relational God the one who sends Messiah into this world to die for your sins and mine, the one who gives access to you and to me. But sometimes, folks, sometimes, sometimes all you can do is sigh. You ever been there? In my word, he's sighing in the morning hours. It's not at the end of the day where he is so wiped out He is looking over what he is about to encounter in the morning hours. In other words, what you are now combining here in this opening verse is both the articulate and the inarticulate. What is verbalized and what is emotionalized. Don't feel as though when you can't match words to what it is you're bringing before God, that therefore you're just going to have to set it aside and start off your day. There's the grace of sighing. Your omniscient God understands both the verbalized and the emotionalized. What's articulate, what's inarticulate. And together, you bring that before your sovereign God. David did. And when the disciples said to Jesus, teach us to pray. Here now, God in essence is teaching you and teaching me that there are going to be times when very simply we lack the verbal composition necessary to articulate what we would want to be able to express before the omniscient, sovereign God of the universe. You know what he's saying? It's okay. Bring it anyways. I got you covered. But bring it. Now, the intensity is escalating. He petitions God. Give ear to my words, O Lord. 
Consider my groaning. Back to the give. Give attention to the sound of my cry. Notice the my's here. My words, my groaning, my cry. What I want you to see here is that he does not leave the my's to his own emotional state. He now connects the my's to his relational God. Because he then says, my king, my God, is that good? Take all the my's now, weave them together. My words, my groaning, my cry, but don't leave them there. Instead of a disconnect where it is all emotionally, inwardly encompassed, now articulate my God, my King, my God. And what is absolutely fascinating is that David is the King. David is saying that there's one with greater authority at this point than me. Absalom has declared himself to be king, but there is one greater than Absalom here. And so now you are my king, says the king. And I thought about that. Because a story years ago out of the London newspapers offered this as a perspective where there was a boy that was with his family visiting London, and for whatever reason, the boy decided it was his mission to be able to see the king, prior era, before Elizabeth. So when he arrived at the palace, the story is told, the gates were closed, obviously, and the soldiers refused, for obvious reasons, his request. So he went to what we might call here in America, the policeman, who said, I'm sorry, but you're just not allowed to go in there with a smile on his face. But now the rest of the story. For you see, standing right next to this policeman was this man who overheard the conversation and turned to the boy and said, tell me more about why you want to see the king. He said, I've, I've wanted to see him all my life. And so the man took the boy by the hand and said, come with me. So they moved toward the gate and the soldiers sprang to attention. A guard quickly opened the gate for them to enter. He led the boy into the palace and up the steps and absolutely no one attempted to stop them as they went right into the king's offices. For you see, the man who had been standing next to what we might call the police officer was the Prince of Wales. The king's son. He was the one and the only one who could give the boy access to the father the king. On the cross of Jesus Christ was the placard 
king of the Jews. But when we wedded together Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, Psalm 2 being the messianic psalm, where we see the sovereign seated on his throne as the kings of the world found themselves thwarted in their plans against the Messiah. What he is now saying, David, to you and to me through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that we have access to the sovereign one through the one who on that cross was called king of the Jews. We have access to sovereign royalty. Whether you find yourself capable of verbalizing or simply emotionalizing, In the midst of the escalation of intensity, you bring it before the one he says is my king, my God, says David, king of Israel. And then adds for emphasis, for to you do I pray. And so now, wanting to re-emphasize this idea of Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, the covenantal name for God, the relational name. He, up to verse 3 now, which is where we're at, not once but twice, speaks of the morning hours. Do you see it with me? O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. The morning hours. Now, the morning hours, when you got your cup of Starbucks and you're sitting there, and David has just gone into his Jewish deli, see, and he's gone, gotten his Jewish Starbucks, and he's sitting there, and he's now organizing his prayers before God. It's the morning hours, and what we find here is that when you and I pull out our concordances and begin to look for the word morning found in the scriptures, here are some words that capture our attention. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes when? In the morning, Psalm 30, verse 5. Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur and he will hear my voice, Psalm 55, verse 17. O Lord, I've cried out to thee for help and in the morning my prayer comes before thee, Psalm 88, verse 13. And then there's Jesus. We're in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, you and I are told. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a, a lonely place and was praying there. Find your lonely place. I've got my own Gethsemane. Find yours, your lonely place, you go to quietness. And now, instead of starting your day, a cup of coffee, make it black, please, in hand, and coming up with your 25 to-dos, 
go to God in prayer and help him, ask him to help you prioritize the to-dos. Put them in order. What's most important before you this day, O oh God? What's on your agenda before I give you my agenda? You are my God. You are my king. It's to you I pray. And so instead of, in, of wasting our morning hours, we invest the early morning hours by seeking an audience with the sovereign one. You hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you. And watch. Herb Kahn, he wrote in the San Francisco Chronicle these words. Every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up and it knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it's going to be killed. And every morning, a lion wakes up and it knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death doesn't matter whether you are a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you'd better be running. Now, this is the means by which God equips you to hit the ground running. Where praying to God, you get a sense of the priorities from God to lay out a plan for God that honors him and in turn ministers to others through you, you see. We don't waste our early mornings. We invest our early mornings. And we don't play with time. We work with time because time matters. And so you take the, the verbalized and you take the emotionalized and you pull together the five minds that we've just identified in these opening verses. And then what do you do? In the morning, you're still in verse 3, it says, I prepare a sacrifice for you. Or I prepare my prayer for you. He said, yeah, I'm just simply into spontaneous type prayers, you know. Have you considered a both and rather than an either or? You see. Now, what I want you to notice here is that the word prepare found in verse 3 carries with the idea to put in order. As someone who's putting together a menu... A hostess, for example, that's thinking about how am I going to feed X number of people has to have a well-organized, well-ordered strategy. It is the very same word that Moses uses in Leviticus chapter, in chapter 1, where you and I are told in verses 6 and 7, regarding the priests in the tabernacle and then the temple, he shall flay the burnt offering, cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and, here's the word, arrange wood on the fire. What he is now saying is that he, David, is arranging 
in the very same way that the Levites arranged the sacrifices, he is arranging his prayers, prioritizing his strategies based upon his, his offerings to God where the mys of the emotions of life are connected to the my of the king, my to the God of life, pulls it all together. He's got an arrangement unfolding in his prayer time in the earliest morning hours. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you. Get this now. See the next word? And watch. I was sitting at this point in an airport in Charlotte a few days ago, and I was, I was looking up this word, watch. And I looked up at this point because it carries with it the idea, you see, of a God who is watching over the city, waiting for the support troops to arrive on the scene to thwart the efforts of the invading armies. Tie this in now to what David is experiencing as the king of the Jews, where there's a coup on hand, C-O-U-P, and Absalom is attempting to overthrow David and what David is now doing is he's saying, in a sense, I am waiting, I am waiting for God to intervene. I've placed myself, put myself on watch as I carry on throughout my day. You doing that? There's your one through three for you. The preparations we need to make. But now you and I, we're up to verses four through six. And I want to note the second need, the truths here that we need to stress. And as you and I begin to make our way through verses 4 through 6, I want you to think about both the particular, David, and the general, believers through the ages. When he now says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men, you see. And you say, wow, that's coming on strong. What we've got to bear in mind now is that he is living in distressing times. He's feeling the stress of the stress. But as he articulates before God, he acknowledges the fact that God is the sovereign one, is holy. And God doesn't traffic with those that are opposed to God's messianic plan. Because if you tie book one, two, three, four, and five together, what you will see unfolding in front of your very eyes is an extraordinary contrast between the righteous and the wicked that unfolds naturally out of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When God made this promise, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. In essence, what I'll be saying periodically in this series is that in this matter of the righteous and the wicked throughout the book of Psalms, David is representative of the messianic line leading to Christ. 
but he finds himself continuously opposed by an anti-Messianic line, or what I might describe this morning as an antichrist line, which seeks to thwart God's promised plan of redemption. And so throughout your Older Testament now, taking all these various examples of four through six that David articulates in negative form, in essence, what he's saying is that this, these, these are the descriptives of the anti-Messianic line, the Antichrist line, you see. And so, and so you've got a, a Pharaoh attempting to put Jewish baby boys to death. You've got a Haman attempting to have the Jewish population annihilated in the New Testament. You've got a King Herod attempting to thwart the king coming upon the throne by having the baby boys in Bethlehem put to death. And I would argue that when the evil one could not thwart the first coming, then the evil one will then start to try to do his best to thwart the second coming. And so you've got a Hitler during World War II and other such anti-Semitic efforts so that God in his sovereign plan to use the Jewish population is finding that once again there is a pushback against his messianic plan by this antichrist, anti-messianic line. And David is simply poetically describing this in talking about the wicked in comparison, in contrast to the righteous. Do you see it here? This is what's getting unpacked for you as David finds that the forces are now starting to surround him, the chosen one to be part of the line leading to Jesus Christ. Thus, he's got all these descriptives pertaining to these ones, and he's got to then include even his own son in the midst of it all. You can almost sense the weariness. You can experience with him now the tiredness where he looks about and he begins to wonder, where are you, God, perhaps? You made the promise, but he puts himself on watch. C.S. Lewis, the moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists in shoving it all back, listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other, larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. That's what David's doing now. Are we? But then there's a verse 7, and there's a verse 8. And the third need, the requests now that we need to bring. And you say, but when, Gary, are we going to get to the point of talking about how do I bring, what am I going to bring before God? Well, now, notice the but I. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. And I love this. Because steadfast love here in the Hebrew carries what the, the Hebrew word is hesed. It is the faithful love of God for you. The unfailing love of God for you. 
So David says, I'm going to enter your house. I can't wait to worship you. I'll bow down before your holy temple in the fear of you. But now here it is. This is what I will call the premium request in this prayer. Mark it. It doesn't say, rescue me from the stressing forces around me at this point. No, in his priority list, he says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. i got to get it right, God. Because of my enemies. Make your weight straight before me. And you look at that and you say, he's praying to God, crying out, lead me in your righteousness. And you smile. Because didn't Jesus say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? For they shall be satisfied. And in 1908-1909, in Shackleton and three companions tried to travel to the South Pole from their winter quarters, and they set off on four ponies to carry the load. Weeks later, the ponies died. Rations all but exhausted. Turned back to their base, goal not accomplished. They trekked 127 days. And on the return journey, Shackleton records this in the book, The Heart of the Antarctic. The time was spent talking about food, elaborate feasts, dinners, incredible menus. And as they staggered along, disoriented, suffering from dysentery, not knowing whether they would survive, Every waking hour was occupied with the thought, you see, of eating. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And David cries out, lead me, O Lord, in your what? Righteousness. Not because of my righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me so that even, even when I feel so disoriented, give clarity to my path. You're on now to the final need. What have been the needs so far? The preparations we need to make in one through three? The truths that we need to stress in four through six? the requests we need to bring in 7 and 8. But now finally, I want you to see this. It's the contrast that we need to discern in 9 through 12. Remember how we talked a few moments ago about the wicked versus the righteous and how David realized there was opposition to God's sovereign messianic plan? He's now going to distinguish those two lines once again. First, the negative. The Antichrist line. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. There's the observation. Now he cries out for justice, which happens at the cross. 
make them bear their guilt, O God. He doesn't say, I'm going to take it in my hands, but rather make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. And I think about the time in which David had opportunity to put Saul to death, who was trying to thwart the redemption plan that God had through David. David had to deal with Saul in 1 Samuel. David had to deal with Absalom in 2 Samuel. There was continuous attemptings to thwart the redemption plan through God's plan for David, through David. But because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled, not against me, he's saying, but against you. This is about you, God. Bring it home. Once again, B-U-T. Everything seems to be going wrong. But God. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. Pull it together. Verse 12. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You see the contrast, the wicked, the righteous, the Antichrist line, the Christ line. You cover him with a favor, with favor as a shield. And I smiled so big when I got to that, when I got to that point in studying this passage for this morning. For you see, this word shield here, this word shield here that you and I find here, was the warrior's shield, the largest in Israel, which covered one top to bottom. It covers the entire body. What David is saying is that you got me covered. And he does. Let's stand together. And now, Father, for those watching online, for those peeking in, for those, Father, that are, are worshiping you, and we pray in spirit and in truth, we have just now pulled together four significant needs for the early morning hours to help us to prioritize well. When we are feeling stressed, and all around us are circumstances that are so distressed. Give us what we need of you as we pursue you and give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.